recording. <clears throat> uh, welcome, welcome to the Jungle Brothers podcast, uh, episode two. Uh, today, we're recording again from Botany, uh, from the outpost, um, head office, in the office, one and only. We've got a special guest today, Joe, you want to introduce? Yeah, we have, uh, we're very lucky to have Yuri Marmastein with us, Marmastein. Alright, it's a matter. Cool. Which everyone. Uh, he's traveled all the way from Vegas to be here on our podcast. Um, we got this guy in for a last minute workshop. He's got a pretty busy schedule here in uh, in Sydney. He's a very well sought after movement and acrobatics teacher. And uh, yeah, we're stoked to have him with us. Uh, thank you, Yuri. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Uh, Tiora's here. Hi there. We do actually have uh, Coach Alan in the house too, but he doesn't have a microphone, so he's just hanging out in the corner. Thumbs up from Alan. I guess, uh, yeah, let's get straight into it. It's been a big morning. Uh, you know, I'm sure you uh, you want to get back out in the sun before not too long. But uh, a couple of questions. I, I wanted to go a little bit more into um, some of your teaching methods. I uh, speak from personal experience. Having been at two of your workshops now, I find that your structure is very open. Uh, and I found it really cool. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about that? I don't have anything to say because I don't have a structure. <laughs> I have a very general guideline, but I'm so used to now that when I work with a particular group, I don't know that group. I don't know literally until I walk into the gym, and even then until I see them do a couple things. So maybe I'll use some exercises or warm-ups as a tester uh, to kind of see how they move and what they can handle. Um, but really, I like the idea of a little bit of chaos because it keeps me on my toes and it keeps my own development as a teacher running pretty strong as well, in that I don't have a setback. I don't have a set class that I teach. I have set concepts, but how to explain them to the group is going to be different. So it's a lot of kind of gauging reactions and seeing what happens. And then, like I said, what I found when I first started teaching workshops, I did used to write out the plan. I said, okay, we're going to do this and this and this. I wrote it, but I mean, my handwriting is shit anyway, so I, can't, I couldn't read it. <laughs> and I brought this piece of paper crumpled into my pocket. And I realized that I never even looked at it. So I found that I actually worked a lot better when I had to kind of improvise. And in forcing that improvisation, it helped me to grow as well. And what ends up happening is people have those rehearsed kind of things they say. It's nothing against it. It's good to have a rehearsed class. But for me, I grow because I have to explain things differently depending on the group. And if I have those kind of rehearsed moments that I always go back to, I never learn anything where there's less chance to learn anything. So I like to keep a little bit of chaos, keep it open. Whatever happens, happens. Um, as I said, I think I actually did a workshop the other day where I think they were expecting more of a handstand workshop, and there just wasn't a lot of wall space in a pretty big group in a small room. So we did all open floor stuff, similar to what we did today, but a little bit lower level. And I think they had been working a lot of static handstands, and that's what they were expecting, and it threw <laughs> most of them completely off. But it's good in that regard, too, especially if you're doing um, like a workshop that you don't go to very often, it's good to be exposed to different stimulus, and it's good. The idea, like today, and I mean any general kind of workshop, if you find a movement where you're really awkward in, that's a good sign. That means you're learning something. And that means you're in that first stage in the process of that learning experience. I must say, I felt uncomfortable in eighty percent of today. Yeah. Sorry, maybe ninety percent of today. <laughs> it was cool. It was really interesting. Um, had a really good time, but yeah, it was challenging. Um, there was definitely things in there that I had never seen before. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, that's what I'm looking for in a workshop when I come. So 
it's awesome. I don't want to go somewhere like where I'm expecting to. Yeah, that's the thing is it's really easy to kind of, part of it is ego, but you fall into what you've done before. And of mm. course you can do it because you've already done it before. But then to be okay with doing something that you're not comfortable with, the thing is that you have to be in that spot to learn anything new. I know I've experienced it a few times, and there was a time when I was resistant to it, but now it's it's been a process for me as well to kind of let go and say, okay, I suck at this. Oh, but it's fine, I'll try anyway, see what happens. So Joey, you you brought that first question up. I know you. Yeah. Your your training background has kind of been quite structured, right? Yeah. Look, it has. It's uh, very structured, and you know, particularly with the handstand work, that was something that I I really took away from last weekend or two weekends mm. ago with you. Uh, my handstand work has been very rigid, and so as soon as it came time to utilize that tool, but in some different settings and entering it from a standing position or cartwheel or playing with different variations of rebalancing drills on the wall. I found that I was not very good at them, um, which really just pointed out to me that the the rigidity of my practice was limiting me in some ways. It was also helping, and I do acknowledge that there has to be some kind of structure for certain things. But it's definitely inspired me moving forward, so for the last couple of weeks, to just play around with it more. And I think that that's a, it seems to be a message that you push quite a bit. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you'd Absolutely. like people to play with stuff. Well, it's two sides of the same coin because on the one hand, somebody might spend years doing only handstand against the wall and there's no preparation for the freestanding. So no matter how pretty that wall handstand is, there's no guarantee that they can even use those same cues when there's more variables. At the same time, some people just kick up and kick up and kick up for years and never make any progress. So it's important to acknowledge when you need the structure, but also not be afraid to break it. So it's always, I mean, it's kind of every concept If you, in Russian there's a phrase, so it's like good things in small quantities. So it, it's kind of that, it's, it's good to understand both sides of the coin because they both have their own value. Yeah. You know what, actually, that, that makes me think of something, uh, you just thrown down a little bit of Russian there. We didn't actually really introduce you and give a little background on who you are, I know who you are, but I think it'd be cool, you know, I've been describing you in on um, the Facebook event as the uh, the bearded redhead acrobat. Maybe you could expand a little bit on your, your background, who you are as a person. Um, man, that could be a lot of things. Background. I mean, so I was born in Odessa, Ukraine. Um, Russian Jewish background, moved to the US when I was five with the majority of my family. Grew up in the US in Cleveland, went to school there when I was, I want to say 24, so in 2000. Uh, I moved to Las Vegas. Why? Who knows? Number of reasons. Easiest thing to say is to pursue a career in performing. Um, but I know when I trained in Cleveland and I was really getting into acrobatics and all of this and really getting to a higher level, I found that there weren't a lot of people that are better than me. And it kind of, you get that big fish in the small pond syndrome. So, one of the main reasons I moved to Vegas just to be around people and to experience a higher level. And again, yeah, it's really until I, I went to Vegas, I never even met anyone better than me at handstands. And then I realized how much I actually sucked compared to how good I thought I was. So there was that as well. And um, I went to school actually for physics, just a bachelor, so it's not really, I never went to grad school for it. And I got a job kind of related uh, coming out of college. And then- School doing, is college, right? 
Yeah, so I mean, I went to high school, obviously, but I'm secondary school. Mm-hmm. Oh, uni, right. So I went to uni for physics. <laughs> and I didn't even pick physics initially. I actually spent the first year undecided. And then I kind of just closed my eyes and put a finger on something, basically. And it was interesting. I learned a lot of things. But I think looking back at it now, that concept of forced schooling, it's like, I went to uni because I thought that's what I had to do because that's what I thought that everyone was supposed to do when they turned 18. And really, uni didn't prepare me for life. Uh, of course, I learned a lot of things, and of course, I got a lot, a lot of life experiences, but I think most people kind of go to school not really knowing what they want to do, and I didn't find out until later. And I, I'm glad I had that experience. But So I went to school for physics, and I got a job coming out of it related to the field. And I kind of got a taste of the corporate world, and I didn't like it. I can't sit still for that long. Doing what? I was, I'm trying to think the best way to explain it. So I did some work in radiation spectroscopy when I was um, when I was an, an intern during one of the college years. So that's kind of the direction I was going towards. So the job that I got, it was I actually got lucky in getting that job because my dad's friend worked for this company and he showed the HR one of my videos of me doing flips and said, hey, this guy just graduated. He, he can measure radiation. <laughs> Look at that flip. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I did quality control and environmental testing on these big radiation detectors. And it was a government-funded project. I don't know how much, uh, it's all over now, so probably I can talk about it. <laughs> it was a government-funded project basically for Homeland Security where what they wanted was these big portals at every port of entry into the U.S. And a car would drive through this portal, and they had a number of uh, neutron and gamma detectors that would detect if this car was carrying any radioactive material, and then what it was based on the specific uh, signal that it gave off. Hmm. So, right, a truckload of bananas would set off a radiation detector, but you can see based on its gamma signature that, oh, it's potassium-41. Hmm. So, wow. so I did the, the environmental... And again, the quality testing on that, which even though it sounds cool, um, a lot of it involved driving a car in circles at precisely five miles an hour to get data points, sometimes really late at night. Um, when we did the environmental testing as well, sometimes, again, it's just for me a taste of the corporate world, and I didn't know, I still kind of had this, I guess, romantic vision of what jobs are supposed to be. Right? So maybe something breaks. So now they have to find some maintenance guys to fix it because of course I'm not trying to fix this kind of thing. You know, neither is anyone who works at the testers. So then, okay, it's time to sit and spin on my chair for a day. And of course I was still getting paid, but I guess I kind of saw that idea of the inefficiency of the corporate world. And I know at one point I got asked, so I guess I didn't know this at the time. They were considering I was a contractor, which means I got paid over time, which also means I work eight hours a week. Oh, but it's fine. I'm glad that I made the money that I did. But uh, so at one point, one of the salary guys kind of asked me, like, "Hey, Yuri, what do you, you know? So what do you think about the company?" And I guess I was too honest. I was like, Man, it's <laughs> so disorganized. You're just throwing money at things, expecting them to fix themselves. Like I don't see any kind of you know organization. There's a hierarchy, but clearly it's not working. And at this point, I didn't know that literally every company is like that. And of course, that was the wrong answer, so uh, I didn't make it onto the salary. Um, so once the contract ended, I, I kind of wanted to do the opposite. So I ended up coaching gymnastics for a while. I just kind of randomly, and that was, again, the opposite of that. So it was like 25 hours a week of work, so part-time, very low pay. So 
for a while I was struggling to pay rent. Um, but it allowed me to stay, I guess, close to what at that time I was passionate about. Mm -hmm. uh, and it allowed me also time to train. Whereas, you know, when I worked 80 hours a week in the lab or in the office, you know, it, obviously I got pretty out of shape doing that. So, yeah, I moved to Vegas and I did that. And then eventually I quit because, I don't know, I found maybe it's just me because I have some kind of anti-authority way about myself. And I have trouble working for other people because um, maybe I think of myself too much and a lot of people aren't prepared to hire underlings that can do that. And I've seen that happen a few times in some relationships I was involved with. So, I don't know what the original question was, but... Do you think you could be an underling now? If you found an organization, you know, would you be interested in, in working for someone? Because you seem like someone that would just prefer to be sort of carving your own path. I really like to work on my own terms. Um, also because the feedback I get is instant. If I make a mistake, I eat it. But if I make a, a good decision, then I know about it as well. I like that. I like having that kind of control. Um, whereas, right, for a company, you don't even know until you get the manager's review in months. And even that, there's politics. Maybe the manager just doesn't like you. Maybe you still made the company a lot of money, but just because there's a, you know, some kind of personal dispute. Yeah, the bigger, think, the bigger the company, the higher right. it is to adapt. As long as it was a job, I think, that I didn't care about. Because who knows? What I'm doing now, I'm extremely grateful that I can make a living off of it and a decent living. Mm. But who knows if it'll last or not. I'm not counting on anything being permanent. Um, as long as it was a simple job that I didn't care about, that I could go into robot mode. Because at a certain point, there's some disagreement. Or if it was maybe something that I really agreed with. But it's just kind of, for me, that concept of underlings. Would you like to work for the Jungle Brothers? No. Uh, <laughs> I'm surprised. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we've got, we've got four, five, six, six people like working here. And yeah, when something comes up and needs yeah. changing, it's slow enough. Right. Yeah. Right. And here's the difference. I don't know, this is right. what I thought, so... If you hire someone to do a job, let them do it. If you're training someone to do it, then it's different. Of course, maybe you have different ideas of how that job should be done, and that's mm -hmm. when communication needs to happen, but there's always a breakdown. So it's, I don't know, for me, it's hard to see myself as anything bigger than myself, and I don't view people in general as underlings or, uh, or overlords. You know, there's colleagues and collaborators. Even students still, like, whatever, if you take a workshop with me, I don't own you as a student. You can do whatever you want. All I'm doing is offering suggestions, and how you follow that is up to you. So, Irene, can you tell us a bit more about your time in Vegas? So, you arrived in Vegas, and did you land any any big gigs there? Were you planning on performing on stage, or what was? I wasn't really planning on anything. I just kind of wanted to go somewhere else at that point. I felt. Where I was in Cleveland, and it's a nice town in its own right, but I just felt kind of very stagnant. I felt like I got to the point where I was there, but I wasn't really furthering myself or really learning anything. I kind of got into too much of a rhythm, so I needed a little bit of chaos. And actually, my original plan was to move to L.A. because I had a friend who I used to train with that got into stunts over there. But I don't think I have the attitude to survive very well in L.A. And it's very expensive. So I knew a couple people in Vegas. And I had visited them before. So 
Down, not with really any intentions, more so kind of just to train and let's see what happens. And if this is a town where there is opportunity for things to happen, whereas in Cleveland, there's not a lot of that. So, got a job within a month, basically, again, coaching gymnastics, which was, didn't pay much. It wasn't a lot of hours, but it still allowed me time to train, and, you know, I could pay the rent. And then, you know, going to a lot of random auditions, random gigs. So, obviously, the big thing that everyone wants to do is, oh, I want to be a part of Cirque. And Cirque, to some people, it is a green, yeah, you can't talk, green job, but it is a corporation like anything else. So there's still numbers involved, there's still bureaucrats, there's still accountants. And to some degree, any big corporation, people are, to some degree, treated as numbers. It's not, there's no negativity here, it's just something that's happening. So I actually yeah. noticed that when, when I was in Vegas, mm -hmm. watching that, that, that whole company evolve over the last 10 years, and I remember watching my first show, and it was amazing. And now it almost feels a little bit uh, generic in comparison to to some of the smaller outfits. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you're, you're discussing uh, stunt work and watching the way you move on the floor. It's almost like uh, it points look like a crash test dummy, you know, really loose and fluid and there's no impact when you hit the floor. Is that something that you've ever been interested in pursuing? Film work, that is? Uh, yeah, to some degree. It's just that, again, living in Vegas, I'm not in the best city for it. Like, LA is really where the people go for that, but it's, I don't know if I could live in LA for, even going there for a weekend right now is difficult for me, just the driving and the, the general kind of vibe of the city. Nothing against it, it's just not for me. It is something I'd be interested in. I did a little bit of uh, film work recently with just like basic extra stuff. Like I know uh, I'm supposed to be in the, the newborn identity movie, not as a, as a lead, so you, like, you might see me cowering in fear when you know, that demon shooting at me. But. Yeah, it is something I'm interested in, but like I said, I'm not, I'm not working really hard to pursue anything in any kind of direction. So if I have the means, I'll absolutely go for it, but like, I'm not going to move to LA for six months to try to get into stunts. I'm not going to force it like that. But it, it is interesting to me, but I'm kind of greedy. Everything's a little bit <clears> interesting <throat> to me. So now you make your living through mostly through workshops, would you say, and just tra traveling from place to place, taking taking these workshops? So yeah, so at this point, it's mainly through teaching, and I have some online materials, instructional materials as well. So yeah, I guess with teaching would be firsthand, and then performing. What was the pathway into that? Like, how, how did that happen? Was that a social media thing, where you just started posting stuff about yourself, and then all of a sudden, people just wanted more, or was it was it a plan? Oh, there's was never a plan. plan. There's never a plan. Um, I guess I, I did some, you know, I was on a couple of forums, and I, honestly, I got really lucky with timing of when I got in the game. I think if I did the same thing now, I wouldn't have nearly the same success, because now the market is, I don't want to say oversaturated, but a lot of people are trying to, uh, to try to get in on where kind of fitness is heading these days, and uh, a big part of it for me in whatever having, whatever you call what I have now, some reputation, is kind of when I got in. Um, so yeah, yeah, I did some internet stuff through forums, and I started getting into Facebook, you know, and then Instagram marketing. And already, I you know, some people knew who I was from some communities, and then I kind of built up from there. What's your what's what's your how do you feel about the term movement? Do you, 
your perspective on that? <laughs> it's starting to become a bit of a buzzword. Yeah, it's, it's becoming a buzzword. buzzword so what yeah. does movement mean? It could mean anything, right? But the thing is that I'm walking to the store, that's movement, to some degree, so I can think about how I'm walking. Uh, but uh, I know <laughs> in some circles it's... Uh, I can do a muscle up on rings and then body rolls and now I'm all of a sudden a mover or whatever that means. From what I understand the that terminology came originally from the dance world. So okay you have dancers and then you have you know people who are professionals or performers who do something, they're not necessarily dancers, they would be considered movers. Right. I'm very roughly paraphrasing. It's something in that regard. And then of course it got brought into something else. So it's it's a very general term, so it, it could be anything, but I think in that in that general, people kind of put too many tags on it. But again, movement is anything. I'm sitting cross-legged right now and leaning back. This is movement. Whatever. I'm walking in store, or do I go do some cartwheels and rolls? That's movement, too. So it's, I think it's too broad of a term, which is why I use the term acrobatics. Acrobatics is the term that you would use to describe mostly what you do? Yeah, mostly, yeah. And then it's all related to that. So even if I do something that's not pure acrobatics, it's usually some kind of attribute development towards that, or some kind of awareness. Um, I just think it's a more descriptive term, whereas movement is not a very descriptive term. It's very general, isn't it? Yeah. And in one way, you can cover the base, because again, you can say that anything is movement. But it's. It's interesting, I look at a lot, and for myself as well, but also just the specific word choices that people use when describing what they do. It's, it's really interesting kind of what, what different connotations different words have, and the specific word choice that people use when they describe you know, practice. Right, like at the Sydney seminar, it was really interesting. A lot of people said, you know, I'm upping my handstand game. And just to me, that word gave a different vibe in the workshop. Whereas, for example, in Melbourne, I had I don't want to say a more serious crowd, but nobody used the term game to describe their practice. And I thought that the, the vibe of that workshop, not positive or negative, it was uh, on a more serious. It's not the best word because it's never completely serious, but more so. Yeah, right. Like, that makes sense. Yeah, it kind of makes sense. Hence, then practice, perhaps, that sort of description. Right. But, it, but in the Sydney thing, people specifically said handstand game which already gave me some idea. We're trendsetters over here. Yeah. We say cool shit that we take from the Americans. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you push weight? Not. Louis. Um, not currently, because I'm traveling too much. I've spent, I've paid my dues in the weight room. I mean, what does that mean? I've mm -hmm. hit two and a half body weight deadlift. I've hit double body weight back squat for reps. Um, I think. Body weight snatch, but not very clean. Um, 100 kilo, maybe 110 kilo clean and jerk with moderate form for someone who's Stop not a lifter. Yeah, how, how much do you weigh? Right Just now, to put that all into perspective. For 73 was the last time I weighed myself in kilos. And you said 110 snatch. It might have been 100, so don't quote me on 110. I know at still, least I was able to do 100 clean heavy. and jerk, not snatch. Mm. Snatch, I hit body weight, but really ugly. Like, if you were to see that, if I were to see that, I don't like No one's going to say Let's just say it's clean. Like. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm not, so now I'm not really lifting. 
Um, if I'm at home, I try to do one day a week where I'll do no crazy weights or anything because I still do a lot of leg training throughout the week, so I need to make sure I can recover. Maybe a day where I do like some power snatches, uh, some squats or some deadlifts, something like that. Would you say that, uh, would you look at that as a prerequisite to, to build the kind of strength that you've got? Or do you think it's necessary? No. Or have no. you met other athletes like, or performers or uh, acrobats like yourself that, um, that have never touched weights before and still have the same skill set? Absolutely. Power because it all, it is all skill developed. So technically you don't even need that much power if you know the skill. And then you take it towards, you know, gymnast train on a spring floor, so there's another layer of skill learning how to use the timing for the springs. Now to a certain point, they don't develop as much explosiveness because they rely on the floor, but it depends on what they're doing. If they're competing on that floor, then that's what they're training for. I think, I don't think it's a prerequisite at all, because to some degree, being too strong can actually hinder the learning process, because you rely too much on that. Um, but I think as far as weights, they definitely have their use. And uh, especially for legs, even doing any kind of one-legged squats, there's a lot you can do, but the stimulus still isn't quite the same. Like putting a, a big weight on your back and going up and down. Not necessary by any means, but for me, it's very useful as a supplemental work. But you have to be careful with that too as well, because during the week, you know, I'm training dance, I'm training capoeira, I'm training acrobatics. At this point, the lifting that I do, I'm not pushing weight at all. I'm using uh, a challenging weight, but very submaximal, because I need to know the next day that I, my legs aren't dead. You, uh, you look like the kind of guy that if I saw you at a jiu-jitsu comp wearing like a really tight rash guard type top and shorts, wrestling shorts, I'd be shit scared of. Have you uh, ever wrestled anyone before? You ever gone into that mode of practice, jiu-jitsu, grappling, wrestling? I've done, actually I took a wrestling class at Sydney Uni last week and it was interesting. I've done a few jiu-jitsu classes on and off, but nothing. I wouldn't call myself having done jujitsu. I would say I've been experienced to the art. And it's interesting that going into that wrestling class, the rules they play by, I found myself going more into the jujitsu. Like, oh, this guy's head is here. It makes sense to get them into a choke. But a wrestler wouldn't do that. But of course, I'm not a wrestler, so you know, I wasted a lot of energy and they still took me down because it's just the experience. I think it is a really interesting art form. Um, I'm afraid now almost to do to get into too much jujitsu because I don't want to rip my beard hairs out. <laughs> this is just me being vain and shallow. Um, but I think there is a lot of benefit to that that practice. I know, like just that state of being uncomfortable, just for example, getting choked, right? Just practicing that until you tap. How many people would put themselves into that situation? But it, it's good. You get into that adrenaline, and then you also learn how to calm yourself. So I think there's a, a lot of benefit in that practice for sure. And again, it's interesting, like with the very limited amount of jiu-jitsu I had, Going to that wrestling class, the jujitsu technique started to make a lot more sense. Yeah, okay. Some of the submissions you learned and just some of the, the ways of moving, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but I found that, but and, and in my Capoeira group as well, there's a, a lot of the masters practice some jujitsu as well, a lot of the higher level guys. So it's definitely, there's definitely uh, a nice overlap between the two, between the standing and the groundwork. But yeah, it's like anything else, too much of it can cause its own damage to the body. I've seen a lot of jiu-jitsu guys whose you know, elbows don't go past here because they've been in too many arm bars. And of course, jiu-jitsu is a very closed art rest, so everything is going to be very inside, which obviously for protection, for self-defense, important to understand. 
but in terms of balance of the body, too much of one thing is going to lead to massive imbalances. For sure. so you're going to see you know huge deficits in, in back and shoulder mobility and hip and all that. Yeah, one of the uh, there was a jiu-jitsu guy in the workshop today. You could probably pick him yeah. based on posture, you know, and, and he said that he's like, oh, I can't, can't fuck it over my shoulders, can't straighten my back out, you know. And it's true, the body adapts to, to what it's doing a lot of. Um, that actually, talking about the beard, brings me to another question. Uh, this one was actually fired in from one of our tribe members, Rob Cooper. Shout out, Rob Cooper. How long <laughs> did it take you to grow that beard, he asks. I get that question a lot, I don't really know anymore. Because I have it trimmed every couple months. So... I would say this length, probably a year. Do you have it trimmed by virgins? Oh, I got a guy. I don't think he's a virgin. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, I did trim it myself for a while. He travels with me. <laughs> but uh, it's good to get someone else to do it because there's certain... Beard isn't too bad, but when you find someone that you can trust, sometimes you go back for it. I just go for it for the haircut anyway, and then a couple inches off the beard. More so the side, because the sides get really bushy, so to control it a little bit. Have you, have you noticed there's the like volume of beards in Sydney? There's more. Compared to back home? Back home, it depends. There's, there's a lot some cities in the US, like if you go to Portland. <laughs> Baristas. Portland, that's... that's Portland, Seattle, there's a lot of beard culture. Yeah. yeah. I've never been to Seattle, but I've been to Portland. Um, yeah, there's more beards here. I like the culture, I think. Uh, I like having a beard. I don't like my face that much, so <laughs> the beard helps. It's because I have the same face I had when I was 14, and uh, <laughs> I like to see a difference. <laughs> I yeah, like I a beard. I love a beard. Yeah. Just for the record. Me too. And I, I noticed <laughs> looking back at some of your old, your old YouTube videos. That's what I look, I saw this morning. Beard, like, oh, I was like, who's that guy? Feel the same. <laughs> I feel the same way. And that's why I don't take them down. It's good to look back and say, oh, this is why I grow the beard. Tiora is quiet because he can't grow a beard. Can't. I believe. I can grow a really thick mustache. It's like a velvet strap. It's not real. He's got eyebrow beards. Yeah, His eyebrows are like. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably what he went to. So you were saying you you practice dance. <laughs> what kind? Um, that's what I want. Mainly I do uh, mm. contemporary. Like if I'm at home, and I've dabbled with you know some strict ballet and some. Uh, some African dance, hip hop, I haven't done much. This is really like, I say I practice dance, I would never call myself a dancer by any means. Uh, definitely improved a lot, but how far I have to go is still massive before I'm at any level. A big part of it, like just going to uh, you know, a basic circus audition in Vegas, you're gonna have some amount of choreography. If you're an acrobat, they're not expecting you to be a dancer, but they expect you to be able to, to pick up the idea of that within a relatively short time. And just as a skill in the way, is that a mozzie? <laughs> Kill it. Mozzies. Um, just in the way the brain works, it's a really interesting skill that dancers developed in that you know, they can see a sequence of movements and they can replicate it within a very short time frame and understand it. And uh, it's a, that, like, movement-wise, is a really interesting skill to have. Um, so there's that. And then there's, like, it'll really crush your ego taking dance class. So I walked in there thinking like, oh, I can do all these flips and I can move. Yeah, 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 sure. There's so many movements and then doing them within a choreography where you have to hit a certain cue within a certain time frame. Like, it's, it's I, many different yeah, yeah, layers. Sure. I'd like to go there. I, I do want to do more, like, some dance lessons yeah. in the future. I have done them, like, a long time ago. 
Like, like ballet is interesting too, just, just for because fun it's dry. You don't think about it and you don't appreciate it, but it's so strict and it's so technical with just like precise positioning and everything in the right place. And then you get into some like modern contemporary with it's more about the feeling and expression. So how do you go with that sort of thing where it's like it's like that idea of chaos and just letting yourself improvise, right? Well, it depends. Sometimes there's still choreography. Sometimes it's, it depends on the class, really. Okay. Because some teachers have a very structured choreography they teach. Sometimes it's, you know, there's a couple eight counts for improv. What ends up happening, like, everyone kind of has their, I guess, again, two sides of the same coin. So on the one hand, you can have your own body type, your own movement style, that you know you're very much at home in. So that's important to understand. That's a good point. But at the same time, if you have a director that's looking for you to do, you, know, you have to be able to mold yourself to what the director wants as well. So can you define contemporary dance? Like what, what is it? Because um, I've seen it and I, and I guess I can, I, I can identify it, but I really have no idea what it is. I can't define it necessarily, and I'm trying to be as politically as correct as I can, because probably if dancers hear me, they'd be like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> so, like I said, I mean, a lot of the contemporary techniques are going to come from those classical techniques, so there's still like a base of ballet, but um, it's going to be a lot more loose and a lot more fluid where, uh, where ballet, again, is very strict positions, very strict with what is where. Contemporary, again, just a very general definition is going to allow more room for, I don't want to say individuality, but more freedom. And then modern goes completely into that regard, so it, it's, modern dance could be anything. I'm trying, again, this is probably the best explanation that I can give right now. I'm sure if you look on the internet, there'll be some better wording for it. So like, uh, for example, a, a contemporary class that I might take, there's going to be a warm-up of some loose ballet-based technique, but not super strict. Uh, and then some of that technique is still going to be within the choreography, but it's going to be more broken and more more weird shapes. That kind of makes sense. So you spend, how much time on the road do you spend? Like, uh, so it's, it's been different every year, and this is my third year being in business. And this year, it's a little bit less than half the year on the road. Um, so I'm still trying to find the right ratio of being on the road to being off the road. How do you make progress with your training being on uh -huh. the road for half a year? I know I've got a, a lot of members and people that I train that struggle with getting that regular practice in or training and also nutrition as well. I'd be interested to hear what your approach is to, to um, both, actually. And I said, I mean, depends on what you think progress is. So for me, like this year, depending on you know how you view it training-wise, it's been a lot of maintenance as opposed to actual progress. Again, because I've been on the road so much, if let's say I was trying to learn new skills acrobatically, it would be, again, very difficult because I'm in a different place all the time. I don't always have a, an environment to train in. Sometimes it's outside, sometimes it's on concrete, sometimes grass. Sometimes I get a good gym space, but it's not often. Sometimes I'm at home for a month and I can do some drills, but then maybe when I'm on the road again, I'm stiffened up from travels. So you kind of have to get it in where you can. It's um, When I travel, it ends up being more maintenance, more like at home, I don't really train much, I guess for the pump or for bodybuilding style, but when I'm on the road, it's more about maintaining the shape that I'm in. So that if I do have an opportunity where I have to use that physicality, that I still have that. So that makes sense. So at home I might do more skill-oriented things, whereas on the road I might do just just the physical breakdown of those skills.
Um, but yeah, it's it's really difficult to make progress in those and to, to <clears throat> maintain progress. And, and how about the nutrition bot? Like, that you must be trying picky. to like At home, I'm really picky with what I eat and what I cook. Mm. When I'm on the road, uh, I try to have access to a kitchen wherever I stay, so I can at least... But if I'm out somewhere for very long, then I can't, you know, stock a fridge because I'm not going to really eat at all. Uh, Australia is not too bad in that regard because pretty much any cafe you go to here, it's at least, you know, real food that they've made and they've cooked themselves. And in the U.S., a lot of the basic cafes, depending on what cities you're in, it's not that. It's like frozen, packaged. Yeah, well, you're staying in North Bondi, though. Yeah, I am. <laughs> Goddamn center of the universe. <laughs> yeah. But as much as I can, I try to cook. Because then at least there's a certain control of what goes into what you put in. Of course. Mm. Did I see on Facebook from you a while back that you you were in Eastern Europe last year, six months ago or so? Yep. Did you, were you, was it you that was buying sauerkraut juice by the liter? It was. I remember that post. Uh, I actually drank too much of it the first day and later I paid for it. <laughs> Is that something you, uh, you've been drinking that stuff for a while or you just well, eat sauerkraut? I make sauerkraut at home. Yeah. Um, I just saw this, you know, in Slovakia, they had these big wooden things of crowd, and the juice was like two euros for, you know, two liters, so I was just that excited. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's good if I'm sweating a lot, you know, with electrolytes and all that, but it's, I learned my lesson about a pretty small amount at a time. <laughs> but, no, I like the fermented foods I like. I was making kombucha for a while, but then I stopped, and I was making kefir for a while as well, but this year... What's that, sorry? Kefir, it's um, that's like a yogurt-based drink, so it's a fermented milk product. Okay. It's again just Eastern European origin. Yeah, um, I brought some in today. Is that what that was? Culture, through the class. Yeah. Just brought a culture in for us to, to try and use. I like the uh, making the kefir a lot because you you make a usable amount every day, so you can control it. And it's just that I haven't been home long enough to deal with it. Okay. I look. Lighting up my culture again. It looked milky when she walked it through. What's so speaking of culture, do you get back to the Ukraine often? Is that are you close to your family over there, or is, that, uh, is there a bit of detachment there? Or? My family is mostly all in the U.S. now, so right. mostly Cleveland, and then I now have a kind of a cousin in California and kind of some other places. So the family that is still in Ukraine, either I've never met them or I don't really know them. It's more distant family, so all of my more immediate family is only to the U.S. basically. Is there any particular reason why, or is that just for the, was it was it for better opportunity or? Yeah, I think. I mean, I have to consult the family of why, but I think it was more about just opportunity. Because we moved in '92, so that would have been basically right after the Soviet collapse. Yeah. Okay. Uh, if you you're talking about your time uh, in the corporate world, and how it took you a while to, to realize what you wanted to do. If you had to do everything again from the beginning, what uh, what disciplines would you would you form your foundation on, and in what in what order? I know the thing. Not necessarily, I mean, disciplines could be anything, but one thing that I didn't do enough, uh, and that's like probably the main thing looking back on, is just spend years working on super basics, not even not even trying to do anything in more advanced and just perfecting it. Basics um, as in like? In anything. If yeah. it's, you know, if it were a capoeira, it would have been just more basic kicks. Because I, I watched some of my videos some of the years ago, and you know what my kicks looked like and what I thought they looked like. 
it's clearly not the same thing. And even now when I see my cakes, but they've come a long way still. So just whatever discipline I did, and obviously like basic martial arts is useful, um, regardless of what that is, whether it's jujitsu or taekwondo or, or capoeira. Basic gymnastic skills, and by that I mean rolls and cartwheels, making them smooth. Spending years just working basics so that you don't have to question them. So that when you move to anything more advanced, the basics don't deteriorate. And that's, I know I moved too fast. Uh, I didn't develop a base. I didn't know, so it wasn't my fault. It's not like, oh, I knew I should be working on more basics, but instead of the privacy. It was just I wanted to try it and I didn't know the difference. But, um, I know I played soccer for a while too. Whether or not I would do that again is debatable, but I know foot-eye coordination is really interesting in that regard. It's a lot of running, which I don't like that much, but it can be useful for some regards. I don't have a good answer as far as discipline, because any discipline can develop a certain amount of control if you do it right. And then every discipline in that same regard is limiting. So it's good to have a wide exposure. Um, and I think it's good not to get too caught up or too strict in one thing. Maybe for, for a couple of years at a time to understand it, but eventually it's good to be strict and to break you. Do you, do you uh, would like to study multi, multiple disciplines at the same time, or would you, do you focus on one and make that really exceptional and then move on to another or? It depends on which stage of learning, um, because some disciplines overlap, but some disciplines overlap in a way that can hinder the others. So it is good to have a, a focus, especially if you're still kind of new to the kind of training. It's good to stick with mainly one discipline for X amount of time until you understand it, so there's not an overload of information. Um, because I know for me, it was just obsession about different things. So maybe at some point I was obsessed about capoeira. At some point I was obsessed about hand balancing, or I would think about it all the time. At some point it was more gymnastics style. I've had kind of all those, all those obsessions, but I think in especially the beginning part of the learning process, it's good to have more of a focus uh, before before those habits are built. Two focus habits rather. But it all depends, because everyone has different learning styles. Can I ask a question about, uh, specifically about hand balancing? You touched on this at the workshop the other week, but um, what's your thoughts on breathing in a handstand and holding your breath? Obviously, noticing that myself and a lot of beginners hold the breath a lot in the early days. Uh, yeah, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, you should breathe. Uh, well, I mean, it's a, what it comes down to, especially if you break it down into languages, it is a standing practice. So I breathe when I stand on my feet, why wouldn't I breathe standing on my hands? And what ends up happening is a lot of people have this kind of mental view of the handstand that it's a strength thing, but it's like a power where I have to, to breathe in a certain way to hold tension, and you don't have to do that at all. Once you can find the structure, the breathing should be very relaxed. Because the goal is eventually it's not the handstand, that's just a resting position in between the hard moves, like presses and handstand push-ups and one arms and crocodiles and all that. And even the one arm can be a resting position if you know how to align it properly. So the breathing needs to be consistent. It is a modified breathing pattern, so it's going to come more through the stomach. Just because obviously if I'm at a handstand and I'm opening my chest and closing, 
it's going to change my weight distribution. But the easiest thing, the easiest way to kind of train that, because if you're consciously thinking about breathing, it's going to be obvious that somebody's trying too hard. So I try to have this quality of any skill that I do, I can hold the conversation in. And my voice within that conversation shouldn't deviate too much from my normal voice. Yeah, okay. So if you can be in a wall handstand as a beginner, for example, and have a conversation, that's a good breathing pattern to be in. And eventually for freestanding as well. That makes a lot of sense. I guess that kind of makes sense in terms of it means you're doing it a bit subconsciously as well. Yeah. You're, not, you're not super, super conscious of it. Yeah, and that's like breathing, especially in learning handstands, there's such a, a limited place that you can allocate your mental focus to. Breathing should not be one of them. When I'm standing, I don't have to think about breathing. Maybe I can have a, a better quality breathing if I think about it, but I don't have to think about actually breathing. So that is something that, uh, in the beginning, maybe it's not bad. Maybe you have to remind yourself to breathe for uh, a number of hundred repetitions and it becomes the norm, but no mental focus should be wasted on reminding yourself or telling yourself how to breathe in a handstand. Yeah, okay. What about um, another question from one of our people is uh, best habits, routines in terms of hand balancing for, for beginners. So someone who's chasing, you know, their first sort of freestanding handstand, what would be the top one or two things that you think they should be doing on a very regular basis? The top is just actually practice because um, some people go to whatever class once a week and they think it's enough and it's, if you were learning to stand on your feet when you were a toddler and you only trained once a week, I give you up to stand now. And the idea is that there's a lot of small variables that aren't very obvious in the handstand and you don't learn how to adjust to them and with them unless you do it every day. Minimum four or five days a week. So the probably the, the main hindrance that I see in people not making progress is actually not practicing enough. Mm. Now every day, it doesn't mean you have to do an hour every day. You can do 10 minutes per day and still make it a productive session up to a certain skill level. But has to be a regular practice until you can clean those skills. And that's what a lot of people miss is that. Like <coughs> tumbling, for example, or strength. I can work strength once a week and I can still make progress. I can do tumbling once a week and I can still make progress, but I can't do handstands once a week and expect anything to change. It's a really good point. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing we come up against <coughs> owning a gym where it's it's typically formed around one hour classes. Yeah. You know, but we also want to cultivate those skills, so we're, we're always trying to encourage people to do more outside of the class. Absolutely. Um, so it's the same like when I coached kids, I would try to, you know, like, to go work on stuff at home. You're only here for two hours a week, like how much can you really get better? And go home, go do handstands, go to the playground, do some pull-ups. Enjoy doing pull-ups, because it'll actually make you better at what you're trying to get better at. And that's the thing, is it shouldn't be, the practice shouldn't be a chore, it should be to some degree enjoyable. So it's not like, oh, I practice because, you know, coach is going to yell at me when I go to class or whatever. But no, I want to get better. Part of it is just kind of the maintenance of physicality, right? So an indoor cat, at some point, it's not going to lay around. It's going to do some sprints in the middle of the night. So part of the, the reason of training is that we're getting on our energy. And then the other part is that if you're working on a skill, it should be enjoyable. So it's, you should want to to do it every day to some degree. You have days where you struggle to do your practice? The motivation's not there, or perhaps fatigue, mental fatigue? 
I try to do something every day, but that all depends, right? Some days I walk in the gym, and again, maybe my energy's not there, my mental state isn't there, so maybe I'll do something. Maybe I'll do a long warm-up and just a really short skill session. Maybe I'll just do basics. Maybe I'll just roll around on the floor. And even I've had days where I get to the gym, like, no, it's nap time. Go home, take a nap. <laughs> so it's, it's important to make that call. But then sometimes, again, sometimes you may not feel like you're having a good day, but then once you get warmed up, you actually have a really good session. So to some degree, you may not know when you actually start. But it's good to make that call. And it depends on what you're working on. And also, I never have a set piece of paper that tells me what I'm doing. So it's not like, oh, today I have to do 10 reps of this and 10 reps of this and 10 sets of that. If I get there and I feel like doing that, fantastic. But if I feel like doing something else, there's no structure, but at the same time, you can't get to that point without having had a pretty good structure. Yeah, it's the high so, level. Yeah, so a beginner's not gonna be able to walk into the gym and say, oh, today I feel like doing this. <laughs> beginner's gonna have to have some amount of structure to train with, but then eventually, my goal in teaching people is that they can learn to think for themselves and make their own choices. Eventually. Um, switching gears a little bit, uh, but perhaps also keeping this idea of training and, and structure and whatnot. There's a there's a fellow that you you've openly done a bit of training with on the internet. I've seen some YouTube videos of you and uh, Juji Mufu training together. Does he actually wake up to an alarm clock that pumps out black coffee for him? Um, honestly, I, I wouldn't <laughs> doubt it. If somebody, it's not like it's an. I mean, obviously he is putting on an act because he's being an entertainer, but. It's not like, oh, I'm famous on the internet, so I'm going to do this crazy shit. Like he, he was always a very fringe individual, and if you watch older videos of him, he, he had that, always had that in him, where if he was going to do one thing, he wasn't just going to partway do it, he was going to go all the way to the extreme. So, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, where, where does he live? Is he in Vegas as well? No, he lives... I met him when he visited Vegas, but we've known each other on the internet for maybe 10 years now through the trading community. Okay. He lives, I want to say it's Alabama. Okay. Somewhere up in the US. So you remember the guy? Yeah, I do. Uh, what's a, what's a trading community? So, tricking. 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 This is kind tricking. Of, I guess this is kind of the first online community that I was part of. And I didn't get in since the beginning, but I was there since the early days. And again, Juju Mufu is a guy who he, to some degree, put together that whole community. Um, like now, you know, he got famous for some stupid chair split video, but he's been putting information on the internet for 10 years before that. And it's interesting now that he's finally got the recognition from something completely different. So tricking is like martial arts acrobatics. So it's a, a combination of, you know, some capoeira kicks, some taekwondo, some gymnastics movements, some break dancing. And uh, it's very freeform, so there's not really a lot of rules you follow, um, which it, it allows for a lot of individual style, but it also allows for a lot of dodgy techniques. Depending. So a little bit of an organic sort of evolution of yeah. things like a breakdancing type of vibe. Now it's ways. going a little bit different directions because it, it's, it's evolving very fast skill-wise, probably faster than it should be to some degree. Yeah, like you can go in different ways. There's a lot of trickers that are, you know, wushu based or taekwondo based or beautiful kicks, and they focus a lot on basically kicks like from a video game. And then there's some guys who are more former gymnasts that are going to focus on, you know, more twisting and flipping variations. So it, it allows for the differences between them. So it's really cool in that it is free form, but at the same time, 
sometimes there's egos that get developed. Sometimes you see people pushing dodgy techniques when they should have been working basics for a few more years. It's just kind of the, the evolution of what happens because the original triggers were, you know, they did do karate or taekwondo for many years before they started acrobatics. So they had that physical base. But now there's kind of a push into getting the higher level skills faster without spending those time working on basics. And it, because it's still a, it's not a new art form by any means. People have been jumping around for hundreds of years. But it, it's, as far as being mainstream, it's newer. And there's still not really a lot of information over what it does to the body over the long term. Sure. Which is why it's also, for me, I wouldn't say I stepped back necessarily from tricking because I still do a lot of the training, but I keep it very basic without pushing any kind of movements uh, because I want to be able to do it for a long time. And I know for me that if I go with the, that habits, good or bad, that I have developed, the higher skill level I go, the risk for injury becomes greater. How old are you, by the way? Uh, 30. 30. Welcome to the club. There's, a, uh, there's a, actually a good, good couple of questions here. One of our ladies, Elaine, she said, apart from ingesting concrete, what is your number one tip for overcoming fear? This is a woman who trains with us who, uh, who up until recently, I, I suppose Elaine's in late 40s, perhaps. I'd never dare to guess. Shit, I could have just ripped my foot yeah. in it. But mm -hmm. anyway, she's incredibly fit and strong. But her handstand game is coming along. But I, there's a fear element there. Uh, yeah, can you speak a little bit about that? Give a tip. No, it depends on the individual, really, because I have to see what's going on. It depends on where the fear comes from and how people react to it. So I, I can only say very general. You have to know what you're scared of. And you have to expose yourself to that, sometimes in small quantities. Sometimes the small quantities aren't enough and you have to like really push somebody over the edge. But again, the idea is you have to expose yourself to that fear in whatever quantity you're somewhat comfortable or uncomfortable with. And then you have to stay calm during that. So you have to learn in a handstand, the big fear is falling back. So you have to learn what it is to fall, maybe slowly at first, what it is to be past the hands. You have to feel how to react. And maybe even you have to feel falling on your back a couple times. I wouldn't recommend it on a hard floor for someone in their 40s. I would recommend having a soft mat to fall on, but be comfortable with, with being out of control and going into that state of fear. And that's the same again, martial arts is an example, right? Maybe if I'm training boxing, again, my punches are fantastic, my head movement's great, but maybe I still flinch when I see a fist come at my face. Mm. So you have to learn. So what's the best way to work on that? Is it to just get punched in the face repeatedly? Maybe for some people. Maybe for others it's to experience it slowly at first and to find how to react to it. And then you can add the speed. That's just a thought. But that's the important, that's like, especially when I do beginner workshops, that's really what I focus on uh, a lot is learning how to fall and being okay with falling and being okay with being out of control. Yeah, I, I remember the uh, the workshop we did, you were really good at hiding. You mentioned being able to hide when you fall out of a handstand. Actually, I noticed that your go-to position was uh, similar to a lot of positions I see from you, much like a superhero. Can you tell uh, talk a little bit about where that came from, your superhero postures? Uh, it's just part of the presentation value. <laughs> and, you know, when you find out what poses work for you and what angles, then you go to them because it's more aesthetically pleasing. It creates a little bit of drama. 
and hand, you know, regardless of whether or not you're a performer, and like I said, I'm still very much developing my own performance ability. It's not by any means a finished product or anywhere close to it. But sometimes it's good to have that standard for yourself. What is the Superman pose? I, I didn't say it. Or I... Yeah, I'm probably just. Well, it's if you fall out of. Okay, I see. <laughs> I just had a bit of drama. Bit of a Superman. Similar to the uh, the T-shirt removal. Okay. With the Johnny Bravo kind of posture at the end. But again, it's one knee down. You have to find what works for you. It works for your own aesthetic, your own physicality. I mean, you can. And your own personality too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'll work on that ten minutes a day every day. <laughs> <laughs> That's something I can enjoy. What's your approach to? I mean, obviously your joints get pushed to their, their limit quite regularly with the full range under heavy load and you know with velocity and all that kind of stuff. What what's your approach to inflammation? It's been a topic that's floating around the gym. It's been floating around the gym for a while now. And uh, we've had a, a couple of uh, different professionals and health practitioners give their a point of view on how they deal with inflammation and it's always been quite different. So you as a as a for your own practice, but how do you how do you deal with the inflammation? I mean, the very general thing would be having a reasonably clean diet and not sleeping enough. And I think a lot of people in the first place just don't have that in their lives. And then we can get into the actual training. So I do a lot of kind of rehab, prehab. It's a big part of my wake up in the morning. And I do just joint rotations for the whole body when I warm up. Also, this is uh, the harder thing to explain. You have to be aware of any part of your body that's not quite working right. So if I know my knee is a little bit iffy for that day, I might stay away from certain movements or I might take extra time to warm it up. And I think that's the big thing is, again, kind of that sets and reps approach. If whatever, if I'm supposed to do squats for that day and my knee's not feeling fantastic and I do the squats anyway, it's only going to feel worse. So either I have to modify the training because I know how my body's working that day or I have to do extra work to make sure my body's working well. So it's a big part of it comes down to you know, controlling the elements you can control in recovery. Sleep is probably the big one. Um, and then being aware of, so like when I warm up, for example, it's a survey for my body. So I know what adjustments I have to make either to not hurt myself or to perform better for that round. And it's, it's a hard thing to teach. It's not something you can sell, but the idea is awareness. Because I've had my own issues as well where I've just aggravated previous injuries because I didn't modify the training session for that day. If that makes sense. That's my, my politically correct general answer without answering anything. Yeah, no, it makes sense. I, I think we, sense. And we all do that a bit, sort of push through those things. Ah, it's okay, yeah. you know, and then that's, you end up paying the price. It's more important, especially if there's no clear goals. Like, unless if you're a professional athlete and you have deadlines, and your living is based on that. Obviously, you might have to make sacrifices somewhere. Mm. If you're just doing it for your own benefit, for your own development, for your own health, there's no time frame. So it's like, even if you have to take a day off, you still have years ahead of you. It's a great point. I think a lot of um, what professional athletes do and what we read in the papers and how they train and the, the, the level of performance that they work at tends to overflow into general population and that's not just the, the training techniques but also stuff like um, you know the, 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 the fast rehabs and getting back in the gym as quickly as possible and you know getting um, 
cortisol shots and all this kind of stuff and shoulder recons. It tends to be, there's a, I know here in Sydney, uh, in the rugby culture, it's, uh, it's almost like a rite of passage, right. you know, even for the younger guys and that, even if you're not playing professional yeah. or if you have some kind of, you know, rotator cuff injury, it's, it's almost like a badge of honour, you know. Yeah, I've seen that in other communities as well, and it's it's not a good attitude to have, really, because it's it's not like you get a replacement body. But again, I one thing, if you are a professional athlete, and if you do make a living off of it, chances are you're going to have to sacrifice something somewhere along the line. But, uh, but if you're a general public, you have to understand that also training at that high of a level for any X period of time, it's not really sustainable. So it's... I mean, either way, there's no negativity. It's just understanding what the goals are and what the consequences might be. Cool, man. I was going to say, maybe there will be replaceable bodies in the future. Yeah, who knows? We're just waiting. Stem cells and all that. Mm -hmm. Peptides, baby. (laughs) Pretty much, regardless of how well you recover, every injury has some permanent effect. Anytime you get hurt substantially, it never completely goes away. There's always some kind of compensation in the body, scar tissue, whatever. So, the way I train now, I think nothing is worth an injury. Maybe I didn't think the same way years ago when I did get hurt, but, and again, it's one thing, if, if you're a professional athlete and your job depends on that, then yeah, you want to come back to it pretty fast. And also, you probably have a limited amount of time that you can do what you do. But at the same time, you can't be at that high of a physical level for that long. Um, so, it's also good to have a backup. Why? You'll see a lot of athletes, right, who get out of their sport and they've only done their sport. And then, you know, you'll see, for example, in some sports where the athletes get out and they try to become coaches or teachers, and that's a skill that in itself takes many years to develop. Sure does. Wise words. Um, nothing's worth an injury. Um, cool, man. Uh, I think we should probably wrap it up. It's like a hot box in here. Um, kept my, you for a while. We've kept you for a while. It's been great to have you. Um, you guys got any more questions for Yuri? You've only said him about a thousand questions so far. There was one that was actually pretty important. It's probably the biggest one. Oh, okay. Um, Let's have it. So who would win in an arm wrestle between Dutch and Dylan? <laughs> and does pushing too many pencils in the CIA actually affect performance? <laughs> I think it does. I noticed that you referenced that last week when I asked you to do a power photo with me. That was your, that was your go-to to, to fucking awesome pose. I love that photo. Commando movie reference. Damn right. Most people should know what that is predator. if they don't. Yeah, I think... Oh, he's a predator. Excuse me. Commando is also a fantastic movie in itself. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should do a podcast of us just watching it. Amazing. Commenting I know it's got the Van Damme poster as well, which is fantastic. It keeps track of our membership base. Nice. <laughs> awesome, man. Thank you so much for making the time for us. Thank Absolutely. You. Very humble. Thanks for sharing the knowledge. And um, yeah, we look forward to having you again next time you're in Sydney. Um, yeah. Where can people find out a little bit more about yourself? You've got a, a blog, yeah? A pretty popular yeah. blog. Is it popular? I don't even read it. Joe reads it. Um, I have a website. <laughs> It's, it's, uh, it's yuri-mar.com, so y-u-r-i-mar.com. Um, I post more regularly on Facebook and Instagram. So Facebook is just my name, Yuri Marmerstein. Instagram is my name with an underscore in between, so Yuri underscore Marmerstein. 
You have an ebook yeah. with a lot of great material too, right? I do. You can get it off my website or on Amazon. Um, I oh. get more of the money if you buy it off my website, so that's my preference. Nice. So I can do what he says, people. Uh, it's about the handstand <laughs> process. It's, well, of course, there's a lot of handstand courses out there, um, but I try you know, to make something different that really exposes the process of learning how to balance in your hands. And there's uh, a lot of the courses and books that I've seen really skip through a lot of the important stuff. And I think as an adult, it's really important to consciously understand what's happening. So this is a book that covers a lot of that in a very scientific way. Uh, I plan on writing two more segments to that, but don't ask me when. One day. Awesome. Okay, cool, man. Thank you. Uh, thank you again. Thank we'll you leave it there. Cheers.